there are these unconscious motivations at play that drive us into service that may appear to be selfless and altruistic, but upon deeper introspection are self-serving. And it's that self-serving aspect of activism that perpetuates exploitation of others. So contemplation is really critical if we want to have the most effective impact and service as we can. This modern world is of particular interest to women. Betwixt, at the intersection of faith and culture. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Betwixt Podcast. I'm Deb Gregory. Today, we're picking up on part two in our series on action and contemplation. I started the last episode by asking the question, which is better, action or contemplation? I noted how often these two have been pitted against one another. But what if they weren't meant to be in opposition? What if they were supposed to work together? Henry Nouwen said, Christian life is not a life divided between times for action and times for contemplation. No, real social action is a way of contemplation, and real contemplation is the core of social action. And so in the last episode, we focused on action with activist Kathy Kong, who talked about her new book, Raise Your Voice, Why We Stay Silent and How to Speak Up. And today, we focus on contemplation. And what is contemplation? Well, Gregory the Great, the 6th century doctor of the church, he called contemplation a resting in God, the infused knowledge of God that is impregnated with love. And more recently, Richard Foster described it this way. Put simply, he said, the contemplative life is the steady gaze of the soul upon the God who loves us. Throughout the monastic streams of Christianity, the stillness of contemplative prayer, it was meant to awaken us to God's action and then to lead us into cooperative action within our own hearts and then outward into the world. And so today I've invited contemplative activist Felina Huritz to talk with me about contemplation and why it's an essential component to meaningful action. Felina has often noted that solitude teaches us to be present, silence teaches us to listen, and stillness teaches us what appropriate engagement looks like. Felina's new book, Mindful Silence, examines these three contemplative themes asking, how can we offer a different kind of presence in the world that activates redemptive impact? Hello, this is Felina. Hey, Felina, it's Deb. How are you? Hi, Deb. I'm well. How are you? Felina Huritz is the author of Pilgrimage of the Soul and her new book, Mindful Silence, The Heart of Christian Contemplation. She was active for 20 years in grassroots work in some of the world's poorest slums in red light areas and places of intense human suffering. Today, Felina is a spiritual director and founding partner of Gravity, a center for contemplative activism in Omaha, Nebraska, where she lives with her husband, Chris. Would you mind starting off with who you are, what you love, and what you do? I serve as a spiritual director, and I do that in a number of ways. So one-on-one client meetings, 
giving contemplative retreats and teaching yoga and doing some public speaking and teaching. I, I just see spiritual direction as my primary vocation. I am a wife of 23 years. I don't have any children. I, I have a fur baby. His uh-huh. name is Basil, and he's sitting on my lap right now. He's oh. about 45 pounds. Oh, my. Yeah, he's a, he's a big baby. Yeah, he's a big part of my life. I run a, a little center called Gravity. It's a center for contemplative activism, and we focus on giving contemplative retreats, spiritual direction, and Enneagram consultations and workshops. We do that work locally, and um, we host three retreats a year. People come in from all over the country and even around the world. Okay. So my background is in social justice, Okay. which really has informed my present work for integrating contemplation with action. Oh, that's so lovely. You know, before we talk about your book and all of these things, especially your work with integrating the contemplative life with action— And I know that you've got a relationship with Richard Rohr, who I think has a wonderful lens on liminality. In fact, he kind of describes it as that space through which transformation happens. So he says, Mm -hmm. this is the sacred space where the old world is able to fall apart and then a bigger world is revealed. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering, what is your understanding of liminality and how, how does that kind of inform the work that you do? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is my experience pilgrimage in the Camino de Santiago. Okay. And that was such a transformative experience, lived in an embodied way over 33 days. And I just remember sensing that the Camino was someplace between heaven and earth. And mm. it served, I think, as a metaphor for me, the whole pilgrimage and experiencing someplace between heaven and earth. That translates into the spiritual journey and all of life of being in between what was and what is to come and then opening to that mysterious work of being changed. And it really is a work that happens to us, um, Mm. not something that we can effort our way through, but rather I think we we have to learn how to um, be receptive and cooperative with that work of change and growth and transformation. Hmm. Tell me about this pilgrimage that you did in Santiago. So the Camino de Santiago is an ancient pilgrimage over 1,200 years old, I believe. And all kinds of people have traveled that way. The destination is in Santiago at the Cathedral for St. James. It's the third most sacred Christian pilgrimage after Jerusalem and Rome. And my husband and I embarked on that pilgrimage in 2007. We had a sabbatical that our organization gave us. And that we started the the sabbatical by walking the pilgrimage and it took us 33 days. We were completely unplugged. Mm. We didn't have any kind of cell phone coverage or anything like that. We disconnected from all communication. I think that really aided the spiritual aspect of the pilgrimage to be disconnected from everything that had the possibility of defining us Mm. and opening to the essence of being and the process of becoming more of who we really are, which was a turning point for preparing us for what we're doing today. So as you were kind of going through that pilgrimage, that process of disconnection, did you find that there were things that you had to let go of? Oh my gosh. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) And I mean, this is the thing about that pilgrimage. Like there were so many literal, physical, material experiences 
that translate to the spiritual journey. So physically, we packed way too much stuff. Like we didn't know what we were doing. And so our packs were way too heavy. And so we literally had to shed material possessions along the way to lighten our pack. But the process of letting go in the spiritual journey is absolutely critical to grasping more of our essence and who we really are as children of God. Mm. And I think we, we tend to take on too many identities that don't necessarily speak to who we are. So that's why, you know, your question in the beginning, like, who are you? It's just like, well, who am I? I mean, you know, I'm, uh-huh. uh, Henry, Henry, Henry Nowen has this great language around the lies we listen to and let define us. So those lies being things like, I am what I have. I am what I do. I am what others say or think about me. And this tends to be how we communicate who we are. Like, well, I'm I'm related to this person, or I'm, I have this kind of job, or I live in this place. It's like, no, but who are you? You know, it's just such a deep question, really. Yeah. And so much of that is based on our relationship to others, right? Mm-hmm. Once you shed that and come into this space of understanding our relationship to God, was that freeing for you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I feel like my whole life is a process of getting more and more free. Some of the things that came up for me as I embarked really on a spiritual journey and took seriously this path of um, transformation was realizing how much I do define myself by what others say or think about me. Mm -hmm. And Thomas Keating, another important teacher in my life, um, has a different set of criteria that matches Henry Nowen's. And both of these paradigms really match up with the temptations of Christ in the desert. And they're just really central to my story and how I've navigated the spiritual journey. Keating uses language of programs for happiness that we let define us. And those programs are shaped around power and control, security and survival, and affection and esteem. So realizing, you know, as I was waking up to like my pack being too heavy, if I could use that metaphor, I was realizing like I was loaded down with the heaviness of being defined by what others say or think about me or being defined by what Keating would call this program for affection and esteem. And it was so heavy. Like when I woke up to it, I realized just how much of my life was revolving around seeking other people's approval and making decisions based on their affection or their approval and so to wake up to that and then to find spiritual practices that could help really free me from being attached to those things created so much more space and possibility to really live into more of my purpose and Mm. what I'm here for. Those words that you used seem like deep trigger words for a lot of people. This quest for significance. So what was that like for you to uncover spiritual practices that helped dismantle some of the baggage, to help unload some of the baggage that you were carrying with that? Yeah, well, you know, for me, it was kind of a dramatic turning point of realizing how desperate I was for spiritual practice. To wake up and realize, wow, this is not who I am, but I have shaped so much of my life around this need for other people's affection or or approval. 
and you know, for each of us, we'll, we'll identify with our attachments in a different way. So if it's power and control or security and survival or what we have or what we do, like when we realize how much of our life has been shaped around that, it feels like a house of, that's built on sand to use a wisdom saying of Jesus to realize that our house is not built on a solid foundation. For me, as I realized that, it just was devastating. <laughs> it was really devastating, and it plummeted me into a crisis of faith, and um, and it shook all of my other ways of connecting with God. So the mm. faith practices that had sustained me up to that point weren't working for me anymore. And mm. I just felt really lost. I felt really disoriented because if that was who I thought I was, and then I realized that was an illusion or it was shifting sand, it wasn't solid, it wasn't real, then this is the liminal space because this is the in-between. Like, well, now what? Like, I don't know who I am. And I'm in the midst of this in-between space that was just really disorienting. Mm. So then I, it was a couple of years really of spiritual darkness and psychological disorientation and just trying to navigate my way through life really now with kind of this restored sight. If once I was blind, now I'm seeing, and now I'm starting to see in every area of my life, relationship with my parents, relationship with my husband, relationship with my coworkers, like the work that I was doing, I was now seeing all the ways in which, oh, there I am. Like, Hmm. I really need their approval. I really need their affection. I really need this kind of esteem in this area and I'm not getting it and see how I'm reacting to that. So it was just like mm. huge wake up, you know, to reality. And then um, after a couple of years, I met Thomas Keating and one of the age old proverbs in the wisdom tradition is that when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And I guess it took, you know, two years of major disorientation oh, to man. be ready for Thomas <laughs> Keating. And so, um, yeah, I got to meet Thomas and right on time and he introduced me to the Christian contemplative tradition and a practice called centering prayer and that just changed everything for me and that became my central spiritual practice then to hold me in that liminal space really like a cocoon to allow that metamorphosis to take place in me. You know, that sounds so beautiful, but when I think about that of like just two years, I mean, when you walked through that, you had to let go of a lot, not just in terms of your identity, but your career changed. Did your relationships change? Oh my gosh. Like, so during those two years, it's kind of like the foundation of my identity was being completely shaken up. And so then it it totally impacted my most central relationship, which was with my husband of like six years, I guess. So see, that relationship had been shaped around this false identity of being attached to affection and esteem. And so I would relate to him in whatever ways would best serve my sense of being approved and loved by him. Oh, wow. So you can oh, imagine right. when you take yeah. that away. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you guys so had some turbulent times. <laughs> whoa. So much turbulence. Yeah. And then even more years of recovery from that turbulence. And oh my. 
And, uh, and then, you know, he's had to go through his own points of growth and transformation that's also impacted the marriage. So it, it can be a pretty wild ride. Oh, wow. And you guys were in the midst of Christian service and leadership through that time, right? Yes. And then as we made our way over the years through some of this transformation, um, individual and then as a couple, then of course that all impacted the organization in different ways. And, and so we had to work all of this out over many years. You know, we didn't make a career move for another 10 years. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So this wasn't a sudden awakening. This was like a really That's groggy, right. <laughs> yeah. rubbing, yes. brutal awakening. Like, yeah. That, you know, that lasted over, you know, several years of like, moving through liminal space and then coming out of the cocoon and trying out the wings and mm. learning how to be this new expression of me in relationship in public space. Yeah. And then it just continues, you know, like we're still in process of being more and more free and refined and focused on who I am and what it is I'm here to do. It's a constant refinement process, but I, I feel like that early stage was, in a way, like true conversion more than like what I had lived up to that point, which was more of a adherent to a belief system. Now I was being converted, changed. I was something different. Hmm. So your book is really kind of all about this process, right? This awakening hmm. for you. Well, you know, Pilgrimage of a Soul was my first book, and um, and that really goes into the nuances of what I experienced and that major awakening. And, and then Mindful Silence, which just came out in November, is a basic introduction to the contemplative tradition. Okay. You said that centering prayer became a really formative practice for you during this transition. That's right. Can you talk about that? What do you mean by centering prayer? Yeah, sure. Or even the contemplative practices. So the contemplative tradition is an ancient part of the Christian faith that's interwoven in our roots in the lineage of the tradition, but has been largely lost hmm. in favor of a more rational, intellectual relationship to the faith. Okay. And there's some points in history that are, are really critical for those turning points, and I, I highlight that in the book. To help the readers understand what happened, what went wrong. And if I grew up in the church, like, why have I not heard about contemplative prayer? Yeah. And I think a lot of Christians, when they first hear about contemplative prayer, they look at it with some suspicion or some fear because it's unknown, because they haven't grown up knowing about it and being taught this aspect of the faith. And so mm -hmm. as Christianity developed into a religion and an institution, um, there were some turning points of favoring the, the rational, intellectual kind of relationship to the faith and the more heart-centered, intuitive, mystical aspect of the faith really was pushed to the margins and preserved primarily in monasteries. Okay. So through the monastic tradition, the contemplative, mystical aspect of prayer and relationship with God was preserved, but not even well taught or uh, carried down within even the monasteries. So some monasteries mm. even kind of got away from the tradition. 
but it was in the 60s in the West that, well, there was just a huge spiritual revolution happening. Some of the listeners may have lived through that. I didn't. I just get to read about it. Um, <laughs> but this major spiritual revolution took place, and um, there were several key teachers from the East that were making their way to the U.S. and parts of Europe. And what had been, you know, kind of traditionally these Christian nations were waking up to their need for spiritual practice, and they weren't finding it in Christianity And so teachers from Buddhism and Hinduism were offering spiritual practices for the heart and mind that traditional Christians were able to find in their faith. And so uh, a number of these, yeah, (laughs) that's right, exactly. But no one was offering it at that time. And, And so a number of these monks, people like Thomas Keating and John Maine from the UK, Basil Pennington here in the States, William Menninger, they were observing what was happening. They're like, you know, this is so sad that so many of these young people who grew up Christian are having to turn to other religions. We have a contemplative stream in Christianity that these monks in particular had really honed in on and were practicing. And they were like, we need to make this more available to people. And thus, thus began kind of the Western contemplative renewal. So, I mean, this is like cutting edge. This is, we're just at the front side of this renewal. I mean, that's only been about 40 years. So then later, it's interesting, in the 80s, Thomas Keating founded Contemplative Outreach. Um, Richard War founded the Center for Action and Contemplation. Tilden Edwards founded Shalem Institute around that time. Okay. And in the UK, John Main, actually, I think it was Lawrence Freeman at that time, in the lineage of John Main's original teachings, founded what's called World Community for Christian Meditation. And unbeknownst to each other, they all founded these organizations dedicated to carrying forward the Christian contemplative tradition. Oh, interesting. So So they weren't connected. Okay. No. And that's only been since the 80s. You know, this is just a really fresh time in history for us in terms of Christian spirituality and being reconnected to our contemplative roots and learning how to really integrate mind and heart in the faith journey that makes it possible for us to really open up to this transformation that I was speaking about earlier in terms of my own experience. And what was your experience? How did that anchor you when you were in that liminal space of just complete Mm -hmm. disorientation? Yeah, I mean, I didn't know it then. I couldn't have articulated it. I was so disoriented. But looking back, it's like, yes, I really needed a practice that could hold me and how much of my orientation toward my faith before then was really me holding my faith. And it was like, I needed my faith to hold me. I needed to let go. I needed to be held by God. And so much of my orientation before was about holding on to God, pursuing God, clinging to God, like getting God to respond to me. It was so much my own effort. And so centering prayer just gave me this way to be held and to let go, which deepened my trust in God and made it possible really to open to what we call divine therapy so that I could be receptive to God's deeper healing inner work in me. 
And that word divine therapy, I've even come across that in some of the works of the very early Christian fathers, right? Yeah, exactly. And this contemplative tradition dates back to at least the third and fourth century desert mothers and fathers. We have their writings that serves as great direction for us today in terms of the contemplative Hmm. lineage of our faith. You mentioned that it's just a, a time for you to let go and really trusting God in moments of presence. How is the the centering practice that you do different from like a mindfulness that my kids do in their classroom? Because that's like a big mm. thing right now. Everybody's mm-hmm. bringing in teachers to do mindfulness with kids. As yes. I observe it, it seems a little bit different from what you are after when you do your centering mm. prayer. So what's the difference between modern mindfulness and the centering mm. prayer that you do? Yeah, that's so good. Um, I'm fascinated by the mindfulness movement, and I recognize its benefits. Our society is much more open to mindfulness now than we were even in the 60s because there's been an effort to bridge science with consciousness. So there's been like scientific studies done on Buddhist monks to show the impact of such practices on Mm -hmm. the brain. And then we've been able to scientifically discover all the physical um, health benefits and the psychological benefits of a basic like mindfulness practice. And what we've found in looking at all the world religions and their contemplative dimension is that these teachers, you know, they all share in common that these spiritual practices were developed for the deconstruction of the self, Mm. which is what I'm talking about, and that these physical and psychological benefits are just like byproducts. But the essence of these kinds of practices were really designed to support the transformational journey So the mindfulness that is packaged in our society in a secular fashion and taught basically just as like mind training is super wonderful. It's terrific and it does produce a lot of helpful benefits, Mm. but it's not necessarily orienting us toward the spiritual journey, which is about transformation of the self. Okay. So what I'm hearing you say is that we can do these practices and feel peaceful or get through like rough times, um, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't necessarily lead to any kind of spiritual transformation. Not unless we have a teacher and some support along the way to help awaken us and orient us on that path. Otherwise, it can just kind of stay at the surface level. Okay. So Mm -hmm. deconstructing the self, which sounds horrible to do if you're already in a state of deconstruction. (laughs) Mm. But is it that horrible or is it helpful? It's so interesting, you know, because I'm so in it at this point that I can't imagine life any other way. Okay. Um, And I try to like, I'm really empathic I try to imagine what this, what is this like for the average person that's like driving down the road listening to a podcast about this you know and um what must that be like for them I think what I would say is is life working out well for you the way it is because if so then yeah like the spiritual journey that contemplative practices support then it's not for you like if you're quite content with the way life is working for you 
yeah, then just <laughs> keep driving, think, you know, <laughs> keep driving. Yeah. Like carry on. Like I'm glad that life is working out so well for you. But I think the majority of us, if we're honest, we realize that life is not working out so well for me. Hmm. I'm frustrated with the way things are going, or I'm depressed about the way things are going, or I'm angry about the way things are going. We haven't learned how to be with reality in such a way that it can let it change us. It's not that life is the problem. It's not that my spouse is the problem, or my job is the problem, or my society is the problem. It's that I'm the problem. And when we can awaken to that and realize that, then I think we're right for contemplative practice that then will support us in the process of personal change and transformation. And to the degree that we have changed, then our families are changed, our society has changed, our world can be changed. But too often before we awaken, and this was true in my life and all those years of social justice work, being asleep to my own need for transformation I projected all of my angst and frustrations and anger and depression and anxiety on the external world and tried to change the external world. And there's nothing wrong with, of course, I'm very committed to wanting to see change in our world, but to do that without simultaneously being committed to my own transformation is really short-sighted because both are absolutely necessary. Without opening to my own growth and transformation, I'm unknowingly contributing to the problems that are frustrating me in the external world. Hmm. I think that's a very wise perspective. As I look at it, I see two things happening in the the Christian world right now. There is this contemplative stream that's opening up, which is really beautiful and grounding for many. And there's also an activism stream, right? We have found our voice um, and we've been learning and I would say there has been a compulsion to be activists for the things that we believe that Jesus stands for. And you did that for a long time, right? You spent the first part of your Christian life being active in that sense. So I'm curious, like, is there a point of intersection between activism and contemplation? And what what has that been for you? Yeah, so the intersection is that the two hold hands in my own life. What that has meant is originally, the more I was giving out into the world in service, the more I was realizing my own limitations, which then brought me into deeper contemplation And as time has unfolded, having greater discernment about how to be of service in the world, how to refine my focus and my energy in service to others has become more clarified the deeper I go into contemplation. What's coming to mind too right now is this last week. I've been giving out a lot this year because more than usual because of the publishing of this book and wanting to be available. It's like, for those who are thinking about writing a book and haven't yet, um, writing the book is just the first step. The second part is trying to get it out into the hands of the people that you've written it for. Mm, That's a lot of work too. (laughs) It is a lot of work, you know? And so I, I wanted to be of service to that for a time. And, but what that has meant is that last week I've really crashed. Like, Mm my energy was 
very much depleted. You know, at first I'm kind of like, what's wrong with me? Like, why am I so tired? You know? And then I, I'm looking at the pace that I've been keeping and it's catching up to me, you know, and what that has demanded of me is obvious, like readjustment of slowing down in different ways. And then going deep into prayer and contemplation and like, I need more of it right now because I've just come up to some of the limits. And what centering prayer does for me is it helps keep me connected to the flow. And if I'm pouring out more, then I need even more spiritual practice. Mm. And, uh, And that's just how it evolved for me. Yeah, which sounds tricky because like, you, you started out talking about how giving of yourself, you're someone who wants to serve and help. And I'm sure that writing a book, there are aspects of that old self that keep trying to creep back in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, That's right. <laughs> yeah, what strikes me is that like this isn't really a journey that comes to a plateau or an, a destination, is it? Is this That's just right. a, a cycle that we always find ourselves in? I think when we wake up to what I might call our personality that's defined by things like power and control, security and survival, affection and esteem. When we wake up to that, the game in a sense is over. Now we know what we're dealing with. We've uncovered the human condition and its particular shape in us because now it's unmasked. Like we see what's going on, but that doesn't mean the work is done. That doesn't mean now we don't have to deal with all that stuff anymore. Now we get to deal with it. Like now we get to deal with those unconscious motivations that were at play. They were unconscious. We didn't know any different. Now they are conscious. So we're so vulnerable to those motivations that are are not maybe pure. And so we're so vulnerable to them, but they have less power over us or control. I mean, they have as much as we give them. Let's put it that way. They're not as sneaky anymore. We can kind of see them creeping up if we're looking. That's right. And that's why spiritual practice is so crucial. And even a practice as basic as mindfulness is so crucial because it keeps us awake. It keeps us conscious. It keeps us with our eyes wide open to what's going on and how we're being motivated. You started your book out with the story of a liminal moment for you when you were visiting Sierra Leone. So I wonder if you might share a little bit about that story, but also how that's given you a lens as a spiritual director and as someone who... I'm guessing you do see a lot of activists at the center. What is your encouragement for those who are engaged in a very active life but haven't developed the contemplative practices? So the story that you're referring to is this major turning point in my life where I was visiting Freetown, Sierra Leone, at the peak of the war over blood diamonds. Okay. And I was confronted with the paradoxes and contradictions of young boys um, being forced to be soldiers and commit unthinkable atrocities. And yet they were just boys, children, who were also victims themselves of this war. You know, some of these boys were as young as five years old who were conscripted into war. And in them, I was confronted with all that is good and evil within us, what we're capable of. And it was just this mingling of good and bad all together in human form. 
in the vulnerability of a child. And so this was completely dumbfounding to me. I, all the categories and paradigms that I had created to understand good and evil and wrong and right and were now shattered. I was really confused and not just confused, but devastated that I realized I knew so much less than I thought I knew. And I had so much less to give than I thought I had to give. And I had much less power to heal and, and create change than I thought I did. And so this plummeted me into a darkness of who I thought I was and who I thought God was and the nature of reality. That whole thing led into my whole contemplative journey. And so what I would say to activists today who have yet to really wake up to appreciate contemplative practice and integrating contemplation with their service is if you're not careful, you will unknowingly cause more harm than good, either to yourself, to your families, to your communities, or to the very people you are serving. Because there are these unconscious motivations at play that drive us into service that may appear to be selfless and altruistic, but upon deeper introspection are self-serving. Mm -hmm. And it's that self-serving aspect of activism that perpetuates exploitation of others. So contemplation is really critical if we want to have the most effective impact and service as we can, which may mean for some of us kind of scaling back what we're doing and it may appear to be less or smaller, hmm. but it will in fact be more effective in the long run. And for others, it may mean really enlarging our capacity for even greater, larger scale impact. But it's all about really being aligned with who we really are and what we're really here for and doing our own inner work through contemplative practice so that we are minimizing the harm that we're causing by imposing our will on the world, even with good intention. Yeah. And I imagine, or at least I know this through my own practice with spiritual direction of witnessing how much burnout happens when we fail to really understand the motivations and what drives us to our actions, right? right? That's right. Yeah, I see a lot of burnout. I see a lot of PTSD. see a lot of broken relationships, all in the context of people with good hearts trying to do good things in the world, you know? Just being obedient people. Yes. And yes. And Jesus said that the yoke would be easy and the burden would be light. Mm. But with many activists, it looks like anything but that, you know, it's more heavy and burdensome. And there's a different way to live in the world and be of service where the yoke really is easy and the burden is light. I want to challenge those who are driven toward activism to examine, you know, how light is that work that they're doing. And if it's not feeling light and kind of like in the flow, then it's time for some serious evaluation of how unaligned might you be with the spirit of God in you. Mm. And the more aligned that you get, the more light the load will be. Mm, that's a hard word. 
That's such mm-hmm. a good word. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for, for speaking that. To close out, one of the things I love to do on the podcast is to give a chance for people to lead us in some sort of practice. Mm. One practice from your book that I think feels like a really good introduction is the prayer that you offer of being still. Mm-hmm. Um, would you lead us in that prayer? Yeah, I would love to. The way that I like to do this is beginning with just a little breath work and helping people use breath to connect their mind with their heart and their body. So I'll just kind of guide you through that and then offer that be still prayer at the end, okay? That sounds great. Okay. So wherever you are, whatever you're doing, take a few moments here to pull away from those activities and get into a place where you can be fully attentive and present. And then allow yourself to connect with your breath and take a few deep breaths as a way of transitioning now from getting here to being here. So coming into the present with the breath. We know that a few deep belly breaths can reset the nervous system so really supporting the body to relax into the here and now. So inhaling fully and exhaling completely. One more time. Now letting that breath settle. Let's follow it as it carries the mind down into the heart which is situated in the body. And then breathe into the body and notice how the body is. Paying attention to sensations, tensions, discomfort. Breathe into whatever you notice and see if you can let it go on the out breath. And then follow the breath into the heart space and notice here any emotions or feelings that might be surfacing or perhaps lingering under the surface. Notice emotions that are maybe perceived as positive, those that may be perceived as negative, and neutral emotions. And then breathe into what you notice and see if you can let it go on the out breath. Now follow the breath into the mind. Notice here any thoughts that may be drifting by or perhaps capturing your attention.
rather than getting caught up in thoughts, see if you can get some distance from them so that you can observe them. Just kind of witness them as they drift by. And then breathe into what you notice and see if you can let it go on the out breath. So in this way of deepening your presence to yourself, to God, and this time together, I'll now invite you to repeat after me, just silently to yourself, this brief prayer taken from Psalm 4610, Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am. Be still and know. Be still. Be. I feel it all out all Thanks for listening to this episode of the Betwixt Podcast. You can find more Betwixt episodes and view our show notes at betwixtpodcast.com or you can visit my partners at missioalliance.org. Missio Alliance is resourcing a church reimagined for a world recreated. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed and given Betwixt a positive review on iTunes or Google Play. If you haven't done that yet, please consider taking a minute to help me out. This really is the fuel of podcasts, and it makes a big difference. Special thanks to my friends Rivoli for sharing the music that you hear now. You can check them out at ryvoli.com or Facebook slash Rivoli. Hey, it has been a real pleasure to produce this podcast for you. Thank you for holding liminal space with me today. Catch you next time.